So we're in the middle of a sermon series about liturgies. Uh, and again, I like the word liturgy. If you don't like, you can think of the word ritual or practice or habit. Uh, a book, if you're not reading Bonhoeffer's book, uh, is this one, Saul, if you want to put it up. It's by Jamie Smith. It's called Desiring the Kingdom. And the book is a lot about Christian formation. So I, I'm trying to move... Like Christian belief, we Christians disagree about anything under the sun when it comes to God. And of course we would. God is transcendent, holy other, unknowable, right? I'm not going to have all the right answers, but what I want is to be formed so that my heart, that my behavior, that my desires are, are slowly shaped into the likeness of Christ. And so the book, Desiring the Kingdom, is about you are what you love. You are what you desire. How do you shape that, Right? And I've been talking about it like, how do I shape myself so that I live a unified life? I'm tired of living a fractured life. I have a set of Christian values. I espouse Christian beliefs, but then I don't live them, right? And so it's like a fractured life. But that fracturing comes predominantly because my beliefs are mental. I intellectually ascend to loving my neighbor, but I don't want to. <laughs> I want to judge my neighbor, right? And so I have these desires that pull me away from the kingdom of God. So I have my spouse beliefs that I've got what I want. So like last week, we talked about generosity, caring for the poor, living simply, living on less so that I might have more to provide others, right? And I know that that's true. I know that the early disciples at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is unleashed, they immediately began to share what they had with each other selling properties and giving to the poor and like they were really living this out. And I think that sounds miserable. So I espouse faith in God, but I have no desire to actually live it. So then I have this divided life and I, I'm, I'm never gonna be fully unified, but I love to be shaped, to be formed so that my desires slowly come in line with the kingdom of God, right? So I'm gonna use the term liturgy and I've already put these up a few times, you'll see them, right? I just mean formative practices, habits, things that shape not just what we think, but that really shape our desires, what we want, what we love, right? It's shaping the whole person. The next slide, Saul. No, no, you're good. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to cue you. You know, liturgies, rituals help us answer some of our most fundamental questions like, who am I? What does a healthy relationship look like? What's my purpose? What should I strive for? What's the good life? What are my responsibilities, right? Liturgies, communal liturgies, religious liturgies help answer these questions. They help give me a sense of identity and place and purpose, right? The world I live in, though, provides me with practices, with liturgies that are often counter, right? So I talked about the liturgy of the mall, of Amazon, of consumerism, versus like the liturgy of give, of simplicity, of generosity. Today I want to talk about the importance of remembering, of remembrance, right? I think this is important. I want to talk about the, a movie first. So I'm going to give you a case study. Uh, the movie's called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. If you have not seen it, Jim Carrey is the lead as well as, oh, why can't I think of the British person? That, Kate Winslet, thank you. I was going to say the Titanic. She would hate that that's how she's known. Uh, but here's the premise of the film. And I really, I, th I think it's like wonderful, right? The premise of the movie is this. Joel and Clementine 
have just had a horrible breakup. This is like the beginning. Heartbroken. Oh, I mean, they lived together. They loved each other. And then it's fallen apart. But there's a new technology in the movie. And the new technology is this. You can come into this clinic and they can erase selective memories for you. So you can bring in, you just got to bring in pictures of the person. You got to bring in your journal, diary entries about all the love letters you've got. You bring in all of that stuff and they map the person in your brain. Where does that person reside in your brain? And they delete them from your life. When you wake up, you have the feeling they say of like a hangover and you have no memory of the person. They're gone. No pain. No sorrow. You don't have to go through any heartbreak. So when they walk in, the first time he walks in to this place, there's a bunch of people with like mugs of their dog, like clearly like their dog died and they want to forget the dog or whatever, you know. They've got... But you can imagine that being a very powerfully, like that's powerfully attractive to remove pain to not have to remember a horrible event, a horrible person, a breakup, a divorce, a child, that would be provocative. Like, I think to myself, I would never do that. Well, maybe. And so, the movie ends. Both of them have gotten the procedure separately. They've both artificially removed the memories of the other. They don't remember each other at all. But then they have a chance encounter, and they start going on dates, and it sort of ends with them exactly where they started, like doomed to repeat it. I think it's genius, right? Like there's something necessary about remembering. There's something necessary about pain. There's something that it teaches us. There's something that it keeps us from doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And so we have to remember, but this is really hard in our culture. We live in a culture of distraction, perpetual distraction, and I, smartphones are the worst culprit, but we can distract ourselves in all kinds of ways. We live in a culture that says you don't need to feel pain because we've got a medication for it. We, we can numb any pain all the time, right? You don't have to feel that because you got television. You don't have to feel that. You've got some podcast you can listen to. You've got something else to do. We live in a culture that says new is better, always. What is new is better. Uniquely in the West, we don't value like people who are older. You're not valued. Like in certain Asian cultures, like it's a sign of wisdom. Like you're honored. Like we are going to care for you. you. You provide wisdom for the family. We're like, ah, we'll put you in a home. We, you don't got to listen to mom. She's crazy. Maybe, you know, let's give her a quiz. Like we just immediately, what is new is good. What is young is good. What is fast is good. What is beautiful is good. What is old, what is slow, what is, is to be isolated, removed. This isn't every culture. This is, these are the unique challenges we face. But, the, I mean, I, I think it's funny, right? Like, in the U.S., we're like, this building is 100 years old. <gasps> what? 100 years old, right? And then, like, in Europe, it's like, these ruins are 2,000 years old. Jesus might have walked here or whatever. Like, totally different. We get, get rid of the old, right? We tear it down, put up a new skyscraper. We love it. And I don't know that that's necessarily wrong, except over time, when, you do not, when we don't 
honor our patriarchs and our matriarchs, when we don't have collective memory, when we don't make that a part of our lives, then something necessary, something fundamental gets lost. So I'm suggesting that religious liturgies, and by the way, I do think this, religious liturgies actually make a point to remember. Remember our collective history, our past, our identity. It becomes necessary, right, in some way. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to open it up. So you help me. I've given you a, a little bit of my thoughts, right? So we have a partial answer to this. Can you go to the next slide, Saul? So my congregational question is, in your opinion, in your mind, why is it important? What, is, what about collective memory? Why, what makes that significant? Why are rituals of remembrance important? You can even give some examples if you'd like. I'll just try to keep it somewhat short, right? That way you can get to more people. What do you think? Yeah, Mark. And why is that a problem? Yeah, yeah. How in the world would I have a shared value with you or anybody else if there wasn't something common in our past that would give us that? The only way you share something with someone else, whether it be a practice or a, or a value or something that we think is important, is if there's some place in the past where we both inherited it from religion, from the country we live in, from the family we're a part of, right? So it binds us in like a real way. If you did a thought experiment and like every new person born inherited nothing from the past, no collective memory, you think about how isolated that would feel. You don't get an ethnicity. You don't get a set of practices from your family, from your culture, from your religion. Like if you didn't get any of that, every new person born would feel totally alone, disconnected. What else? Yeah, Jenny. I Yeah, yeah, like a, a broadening of my perspective when I hear other people's experiences on that thing. It, it happens in small ways, like in my family, like my experience of our Christmas tradition, and then I'm hearing my kids talk about it, it's like, oh, this is totally, they don't see it at all like I do, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, it's, it just broadens my view, but and then of course in deep ways it happens all the time. Yeah, Nancy. I think honoring becomes important. Honoring shapes what we value and what we desire, like who and what we honor. Because all of us deep down, at my funeral, I would like people to say good things. I would like to live a life where people can say, like, we're going to honor Joe today in some way, right? So that means that, but that's a particular vision of the good life. What we honor, who we honor, why we do it, starts to shape the kind of person I want to be, the kind of life I think is meaningful or purposeful. 
So honoring the people that have gone before becomes so significant, not letting their memory fade, keeping them alive in some way through that. Yeah, Amanda. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anyone who's felt crazy, like, am I the only one who thinks this way? Am I crazy? Collective memory tethers you to reality, like, I'm not. Oh, that's right, I'm not. We, we, right, there's something in common here that makes me feel like I'm connected. We, can, we have a starting place for conversation, all of that. That's great. Yeah, Margaret. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, you don't want things to repeat. You, like, what do I know about U.S. history comes from collective memory being passed down, which is how people begin to say, I love this place, or I honor this place, or the values that this, right? All of that happens because of memory, learning not to repeat certain things, but, we, but there's other things we really want to repeat, you know what I'm saying? And so figuring that out requires a community of people passing stories forward, right? This is what religion is. It's what Christianity is. We, we come together to read the Bible, to remember the stories, the, the, our ancestors of our faith, people that have been faithful to God for thousands of years. I mean, I, again, I think this is something religion gets right, but I want it to be a part of my life, like a large part. So I want to highlight three things, right, about memory, the power of memory. We've mentioned them already, but one is learning from the past. Joel and Clementine are doomed to repeat their relationship over again because they didn't go through the pain of the breakup, learning that we're not good for each other. This is not going to work out, right? We're attracted to each other. We're not good for each other, right? If you don't remember, you repeat. We do this as a country. We do it as a faith if we don't remember the mistakes we've made, right? So we've, we've got to have rituals of remembrance, I think it gives us a shared identity, and this is like the idea of connection, shared values. Uh, as a Christian, I get to say, I have this legacy, this long tradition, these ancestors of the faith, this great cloud of witnesses that I get to learn from and honor and draw from. And it's not just Abraham and Isaac and Jesus and Paul. It can be like John Brown of this place, right? It gets to be Mary Lou Orndorff. It gets to be the people in our lives that we've lost. We remember them. We honor them. We learn from them. And then the third thing I would say is I have written down a perspective. So this is in part like, um, I was thinking of it like this. When I feel in despair, when I feel like, how can the world function this way? How can people do this? Where is God? Why doesn't God do more? I, have, I mean, I feel this way. I don't know if you ever feel this way. I feel this way. What's God doing? Why doesn't God show up? Then we sing, great is thy faithfulness. And I think, there are people that have had it so much worse. And it gives me perspective. There are people that have struggled so much more than I do. The world has been in like a, a much more violent, chaotic, disorganized place. And yet people still clung to God and God showed up. And God has delivered, and God will deliver. And I have to remember, it gives me perspective. God has not abandoned us. It just feels that way right now. 
sometimes. But remembering gives me enough hope to keep my faith a little longer and a little longer and a little longer and then God shows up. So liturgies of remembrance, rituals of remembrance are so powerful. I'm going to give one historical example that not everyone will like. And then I want to talk about practical ways we might do this in our lives. I think part of why the United States continues to struggle with race relations is because we have not done a good job of remembering and dealing with the past. We want to move forward. We want to put it behind us, right? Whether it's slavery or Jim Crow or redlining or lynching or whatever it is, it was back then, can we please just move forward? But that feeling of can we please just move forward when other people feel wounded, hurt, unheard leads to the continued divide we see. It feels like we're reliving the 60s all again. More protests, more violence, more division. But that doesn't happen everywhere. Like South Africa lived under apartheid, a horrible segregated system that oppressed the native Africans. But when Nelson Mandela was elected in their first free election, they were able to implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to draw out all the horrible stories. They had to deal with it. They had to work on forgiveness. They had to work on repentance. They relived their history so that they could move forward. And I think the United States has done that in part. We've moved forward in part. But when you see the same cycle again and again, it's a problem of not repenting, not dealing with our history, not grappling with it honestly, not looking at ourselves in the mirror honestly. We're just, we're, we want to move forward, and I want to move forward. But you can't move forward without dealing with the past. You just can't. It's like a relationship. If there's trauma, brokenness, abuse, victimization, you can't just say, well, that happened in the past. Let's move forward. You move forward by healing that. I recognize that's, most, that's my view. That, not, that, that might not be your view. You might not agree with me on that. This is an example of what I would argue is like a failure to remember or to deal with the past. So what are some ways we might participate in these rituals? So I'm going to give you a couple. You might have some too. Sharon Shoup uh, emailed me. I love it. She said, one of the ways I connect to the past, and I know Jenny would resonate with this. This is something you can do. Genealogy. She's like, I started to engage genealogy in my family and my history where I'm from Right, Not just genetically, but like what part of the country and what part of Europe or what part of... And it really connected her and gave her this broad appreciation for her heritage. I think this is vital. Like, this is an, like who am I? Where do I come from, right? I feel like I'm not adopted, but I kind of feel adopted. I don't even know the first names of my grandfathers. I never met them. I know most of you that's not true, right? I'm a crazy unique case. But what about your great-grandparents? You know them? You know their first names? How many generations before you have no idea who they were, where they came from? It's like, it's like I'm an orphan, and I want to know where I come from. Well, part of that is like the work of, of digging into one's past. Not that your past defines you, but it gives you place. One of the things that I'm doing now is on, on birthdays, we sit down and we watch videos so when Sullivan has his birthday, we watch birth videos. 
and we watch him being held by his grandma and his great-grandma, and we talk about stories throughout the year, right? We look at old pictures, and like, it's like telling the story of our family, telling the narrative of our family. I asked my mom to write down episodes of our life and send them to me because I feel disconnected from when I was a child. My mom doesn't talk a lot. She's very introverted. She's been writing these long-form essays about like when I was born and the divorce to my dad and all these things that I don't know anything about. And like I just cry when I read them like, oh, like now I, I see my mom. Like I know her differently because she's willing to share all this stuff because I'm 46 now, right? She sends me pictures with them. So she sends me these old Polaroids from our family that she took. And, but I feel connected. I feel seen. I feel like I understand. I belong. I have a place. I just think new is not always better. <laughs> like it, it allows me to honor my mom as this like sage of wisdom. I see her as a human who's gone through all these things and knows more than me rather than just the old lady who's trying to tell me what to do. Connect to your past. Find rituals of remembrance. And the beautiful thing about being part of this church, not just this church, but, but Christianity, is we do All Saints Day. You did it this last year. We ring the bell for the names of people that have passed. We honor them. We say we miss them. We love them. right? We get, I mean, you, we, we get to ring for Vicki Tollefson. We get to ring for the people that have, have loved us and cared for us. That matters, right? Israel finds a way to remember, right? It, the Jewish culture remembers. And so the scripture we had was uh, about Passover. Do you have that, Sullivan? Offer a Passover sacrifice from the flock of the herd of the Lord your God at the location the Lord selects for his name to reside. You must not eat anything containing yeast, right? This is like the unleavened bread to remind you that that's what you got to eat after you fled Egypt. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, symbolizing misery, along with it because you fled Egypt. That's okay. No, you're good. God delivered you on the Passover. You were slaves and now you're free and you never forget. And part of why Israel can't forget that it was slaves is because when someone comes into your land, Israel, you were slaves. How did you want to be treated? Love the stranger. Love the alien. Provide for them. Over and over the Old Testament says this, right? You, ha you cannot forget where you came from. Sure, King David, golden age, army, safety, the promised land, you have all that. But that's not where you came from. You're slaves. You're mine. I set you free, says God, right? This is all mine. And you can't forget because the moment you think it's yours, now it's about power, selfishness, greed. And so Israel, every year. And the Passover is just one of many rituals of remembrance, right? We were slaves and God set us free. We are gods. We are, we're not God. We, we belong to God. <laughs> Possessive. So I want to read just briefly. Stay with me just a little bit, right? So if you did a Seder supper, like a Passover meal, each element, each thing has direct symbolism to help them. So you have a roasted shank bone to represent sacrifice. You have an egg that represents spring and hope 
and the cycle of life. But you also eat bitter herbs because you remember the bitterness of slavery. Heroset, which apparently is like an applesauce-like mixture, which represents the mortars that we had to use, the mortar that Israel used to make. Remember, it's like less hay, more bricks in Egypt. Three pieces of matzah, unleavened bread, to represent when you fled Egypt. Salt water is on the table to represent the tears of the slaves that didn't make it out of Egypt. You have a glass of wine, and there are three times when Jesus takes the cup and drinks, right? Each of those is representative of like hope, suffering. I love to remember good stuff. We call it nostalgia. I love it. You know what I don't like to remember? Pain, my mistakes, when I hurt people. But Israel doesn't cover code, man. Passover, it's like the tears of the slaves that didn't make it. And that's how you remember the good, how God has shown up, and you remember the pain. And this is how you, we grow, and we learn, and we connect. So we're going to, if you've got your cups, if you're online, you can want to grab some juice and some bread. This is one, this is our most common practice of remembrance. This is a ritual of remembering. We, we will never forget what Christ has done for us. But we, we also should see the layers here. We're remembering what Christ has done, and we're going to read about the Last Supper when Jesus brought his disciples together and celebrated what? The Passover meal. Like, we celebrate communion, and that should also recall for us the Passover, which is also part of our religious heritage, that we were slaves and God set us free. And now we were slaves to sin and death, and Jesus set us free from sin and death. God continues to set us free. So we remember what Christ has done. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. And we have this wonderful meal at the heavenly banquet table. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.